Okay, Romans chapter 14, verse 1 through 12. Let's hear the word of the Lord. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but do not quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day better than the other, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be, be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each one will have to give an account to him, of himself to God. This is the word of the Lord. In the Christian life, not just today, but down through the history of the church, there are these two ancient foes. They've been battling out, and they've been battling it out decade after decade, and then millennia into millennia. And these two foes are these two words, legalism and licentiousness. In Rome, apparently, there were some legalists there, and also there were those who were walking in what's called Christian liberty. And they were fighting with each other about how to live the Christian life. I mean, these, these battles have raged on for, I mean, years. And there's always been legalists. And there's always been the Christian liberty crowd. And so, if, you know, if you go and see what's going on in Rome, it would look like a lot of things happening today. And you can make connection points. What's happening in the Church of Rome with this whole deal with food and special days is very much happening. It's just morphed in new ways today in churches all across this land and even in our church. There's always this thing going on, this battle back and forth. Legalism, people making up laws and then demanding everybody else go along with their made-up laws. And licentious living, people who have Christian liberty, they do smoke, drink, and chew and go with girls that do and want to tell you about it. And they say, freedom in Christ, freedom in Christ, freedom in Christ. It's the kind of Christians whose language, you get around them and the language is flamboyantly wicked. And they say, well, it's Christian liberty. And so there's these two people that have always been in the church. It's not just today. It goes all the way back to the church of Rome, this battle. What do we do with food? What do we do with drink? What do we do with special days? And the differences that we have in these opinions. How do we, get, how do we move forward and unify with such differing opinions about things, about stuff that is important? So these two groups of people we're going to see are going to be somewhat representative of two groups of people that always exist in a local church. They always exist. And he's going to give us a path forward. Here's how you get along. Here's how you keep things in perspective. Okay, so that's what Paul, the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul, is going to do for us to do. We're going to bring, we're going to have unity here between those who are naturally inclined to make up rules for everybody to follow and those who naturally walk in Christian liberty and really don't, don't care about the details. Okay, 
So first, verse, verse 1, look at those who are weak in the faith. As for the one who is weak in the faith, welcome him, but do not quarrel over opinions. Now, there's going to be one of these positions that Paul is going to give us, and it's subtle, but it's there. He's going to, he's going to correct those who are weak in this passage, and he's also going to correct or call those who are walking in Christian liberty in a flamboyant manner, he's going to correct them also. But what he's going to do from the beginning is say there is a weak position here. There are weak Christians. That's a reality. Paul says it, and so we have to admit it. There are people in the church of Rome that were weak believers. And there are people that are just as equally justified. They're just as equally a part of the family of God. But there are the weak and the strong among us. And we have to admit that just humbly from the gate. And I think if, everybody is, if everybody's honest, you're, you're able to say that I, there's areas of my life that I need to grow stronger. And if you admit that, then you're freely admitting that there's areas of my life that I am weak. And so there's really freedom in language like this because it allows us to, to kind of take the cape off of our back and it allows us to get the church face off and to say, you know what, yeah, I'm, I'm weak. There's weaknesses here that I need to work on. And Paul admits that from the beginning, or set, proclaims that from the beginning, that there is a weak Christian that needs to be welcomed in. Weak faith. Now, keep in mind, weak faith is real faith. It is saving faith. But we are talking about weak Christians here. Christians, but they're walking in weakness. So strong faith should welcome those who are weak into the body of Christ. And then we are not to quarrel over opinions. You see that? But do not quarrel over opinions. Some people are natural quarrelers. And they want to fight about everything. I have to curb this in myself. Because you know what? Generally speaking, I think I'm right a lot. And I'll insist, no, I see this clearly, I see this right on things beyond what the scripture's written. And then I have to back up and say, wait a minute, I was wrong on that. It happens one or two times a year. <laughs> it happens quite often. No, I know for a fact. And somebody pulls out Google and like, really? So we are not to quarrel over over opinions. Strong Christians are to welcome them in and know that there are certain things that we just don't need to quarrel about, that we just don't need to fight about. It's not worth our time, energy, or even our breath to fight about it. We don't need to quarrel about it. So then we get a definition, we kind of get some flesh on it, and Paul begins to explain, okay, here's some examples of what I'm talking about. Because in our mind, we should be going through and thinking, okay, what are some examples then of what things we should, should and shouldn't be quarreling about? Because in other places, we're told to fight in fact, we see examples of Paul addressing Peter publicly and fighting, and you could call it quarreling in public because of gospel truth. And so we should be thinking, okay, what kind of opinions should we not be quarreling about? And Paul's going to kind of fill in the gaps for us, connect the dots, and say, here, let me give you some examples of some things you shouldn't really be fighting about. Okay, look at verse 2. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Sorry, sorry, Daniel and the Daniel fast crowd, but <laughs> weak people eat only vegetables, I guess. Uh, there's more to this verse than just making a statement about vegetables. This is not about the negative impact of being a vegetarian. It does make for a decent joke, but it is a serious thing we're considering here. This is not talking about somebody who's just uh, becoming by choice a vegetarian. This is somebody who is saying that I'm a vegetarian and you should be as well. 
and mandating that. Imagine that, people wanting to push their eating habits on other people. I mean, does that ever happen? Um, so Paul is willing to eat anything. He, he's, he's eating, and there are groups of people in the church that are willing to eat anything, knowing that nothing is unclean, which we'll hear next week Paul say, that nothing is unclean, that everything is available for us to eat. And the other person has these restrictions that they're imposing upon themselves by principle. They, they, they want to eat only vegetables and believe that that is right for them. They've been around a long time, vegetarians, and those with different eating programs have been around for a very long time. And they've been telling people about their eating programs for a very long time. Diet evangelists. Vegetarians have been saying for, I mean, in Rome, do you know how many calories are in that? You're like... Every single one tastes so good. <clears throat> McDonald's. <laughs> and so there's quarreling and fighting about food. And food is this very interesting thing, and it's a good case study because it still remains a controversial topic today. There's, uh, I mean, documentaries you can get on Amazon Prime. There's documentaries on Netflix and on Hulu and all over the place, food is a very interesting thing that people like to fight about, like to argue about, and like to discuss. But in Rome, you have this collision of cultures happening where you had Jewish believers and now Roman Gentile believers, and this whole Christianity thing is so fresh. Jesus died on the cross for their sins after fulfilling all of the law, and then parts of the law passed away, were done away with. And now there's this old thing that's opened up for them, and they're discovering this thing called bacon that they can now eat. And they're thinking through, what's the appropriate way to approach this? How do we do this food thing? And they're differing opinions, just like there are today. Food was the issue in the early church for Jews and for Gentiles. The Gentiles came to faith in Christ and they started hearing and reading passages in the Old Testament like Leviticus 11 that's laying out the differences between food that's clean and unclean. And then you see these new, te- that, like the New Testament dietary laws are passed away, but then you're wondering, okay, why and how are these to be applied? And there's just confusion, and you can understand why. There's still confusion today. Do you remember just like a couple decades ago, you remember the cholesterol craze where everybody was wondering, is your cholesterol high? Remember that? And then you remember the trans fat craze? Remember Doritos started putting no trans fat on the bags of the Doritos? And you're like, these must be healthy now. There's no trans fat. I remember when I was a little boy, my, uh, it wasn't Susie, my Aunt Susie's here today, but another one of my aunts, my Aunt Sally, would always talk to me about watching my cholesterol because I ate eggs all the time. I just ate egg after egg after egg. I lived on eggs. And she'd be talking to my parents about, you got to watch his cholesterol. Gotta, and my friend's mom, Vicki Oakley, was always talking about my cholesterol. Nobody talks about cholesterol anymore. Like, it's just, yeah, I remember that that's a thing, but nobody's concerned about it anymore. Trends and fads go to white. Remember uh, Tybo, Billy Blades? Remember exercise workouts and routines, okay? The ab roller, the ab cruncher, you have all these different things to keep your body fit. And then the Atkins diet was really big for a while, no carbs, now it's repackaged, and Hank was doing it for a while. What was that, is that keto, is that the same thing as Atkins? Lasted for two months, you lost a lot of weight, but then when you start eating carbs again, you're like, And he's in the state he is today. <clears throat> so now he's back on something more sustainable. But everybody has their evangelists, all right? And Hank and I are friends, if you don't know, so we can talk like that. Um, 
everybody is an evangelist for their way of doing things with food, and there's just a collision of cultures, and they're wondering, how am I supposed to be doing this now? Like, I've just read Leviticus 11. What's clean? The, the hooved animals who chew cud? Okay, I can eat them, but what about these other animals? And how do we do this? How do we do this thing? We should just opt out and do what Daniel did, and just eat only vegetables. And so there's a group of, of Christians who are act, they're doing that. Just Daniel's way is my way, and it's going to be my way the rest of the way. And you should do that too, by the way. And the other Christians are like, I mean, if you deep fry this stuff, it's real good. It's really good. And you should just trust me. You should try it. It's really good. Makes you feel a little bit sluggish in the mornings, but it's really good. And so there's a collision here of culture. And this is a really good example because it's, a, it's an ongoing battle that continues to happen today. How do Christians approach food? And we get instructions we get instructions then on how to respond, okay? So he's going to use language that might be offensive by saying things like weak and strong, but he's wanting to help. He's wanting to build us up, and he's wanting to give us instruction on how to approach different controversies like that, okay? So look at verse 3 and 4. We're going to get some really clear and practical help. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is, before, is it, bef- it is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So we get these clear instructions, okay? Don't despise the one who abstains. So church in Rome, if you have this Christian liberty, and you're eating here, and somebody else comes along, and they're eating only vegetables, and that's their conviction, don't despise that person, Okay? Remember, they're coming in, and they're convictionally this, and it is a weaker position to have these kind of binding restrictions. But don't despise that weak Christian who has those binding restrictions. And for those who have those, that, that binding conviction, for those who are eating only vegetable, don't pass judgment on the one who eats. So those who are doing the Daniel way, and that's their whole life, just vegetables only, don't pass judgment on those who are enjoying meat. You see how practical this is, because this is happening. I mean, this is like they're judging, and what happens in a community of people when you're internally mocking the other person, okay? Eventually, that, that gets externalized over time. And so Paul's saying, don't do that. Just stop that. Don't, don't quarrel over this. Don't fight over this. Have your way. Have your way here, but it's not consequential here. There is a weaker position here, but don't fight and quarrel over it. Give it, give it time. Walk with one another in love. Don't pass judgment and don't despise the one who abstains. Don't make this an issue. And why? Because you both are servants of the king. You both have a master and that master is the Lord Jesus Christ. He has welcomed both those that have strong convictions and both those and those who have weaker convictions into the same family. So what are you fighting about? Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians, and the same congregation, get along. Stop judging each other. Now, there are modern equivalencies, okay? Just two different examples. One, we've already talked about food choices because it is still a thing. My diet's better than your diet kind of thing. And become evangelist and then judge those who don't agree with you. The other thing is things like alcohol or the thing like alcohol. It's a really big thing. Uh, Alcohol, depending upon what church you grew up in or or denomination you grew up in, almost all denominations like pre-1950, except for some Presbyterian holdouts, through that, you know, through the, the, 
the push through prohibition and through the temperance movement and all of that, there were a few Christian denominations that held out and said, this is a little crazy calling for complete abstinence from something that the Bible does not demand. But alcohol, alcohol has been this hot button issue for a very long time, and it's hard to kind of get a balanced view because Christians go, there's pendulum swings where what happens is it's like prohibition, don't touch it, look at it, go to Bush Stadium because it's there, go to Applebee's because it's there, uh, talk to anybody. I remember when I was a child, uh, I found out that my Sunday school teacher opened it up and he had some Coronas in his refrigerator, and I remember praying for him for years to become a Christian. Like years. Uh, just brokenhearted. And, and so there's this don't touch at it, look at it thing with alcohol. And then on the, the pendulum swing, especially when people discover some things about Christian liberty and realize that nothing is unclean, and you start to see some things, you start becoming an evangelist the other way, and all of a sudden you have pastors doing beer miles. And you have pastors inviting people into small groups, and every church gathering is, has alcohol. And, and it is this very peculiar environment where now it's like an opposite peer pressure to where if you don't have the same Christian liberty as me, you're not in the club. You're not in the group. And it's this really uncomfortable thing where, where now people who have strong convictions, they're not being welcomed in because they feel less than because they don't, they don't, they're not matching the passion that this alcohol evangelist has for alcohol and his Christian liberty. And so there's modern equivalencies here that were hot button issues. And that is probably the closest thing we can get to the tension, like in our society today, like the closest thing we can get to the tension of what they were experiencing in Rome over food. And so we have to think through this thing wise and biblically, and we don't want to become evangelists for either way where we're making other people feel less than. And we'll get to more of that here in a little bit. And so these two modern equivalencies, food diets today, mod, popular modern diets today, and alcohol kind of kind of get us there in Rome to try to understand some of the tension that was in the room. And even this conversation now, me talking about alcohol, if this was 15 years ago and I was talking about this, I mean, you could cut the tension with a knife in almost every church in southern Illinois. And not so much today, because people, I mean, people are more balanced, I think, and biblical today, uh, except for the Christian liberty crowd that still is, uh, there's more in the Christian liberty cr crowd that are, are being off about it than there are the legalists over here saying, don't look at it, touch it anymore, from my experience, anecdotal evidence anyways, the Christian liberty crowd needs to hear like, hey, hold on a second, a lot more than those who are the legalists over here anymore, but it's my two cents. There's another example that Paul gives, and he starts to kind of flesh this out a bit for, for Rome. So now the first thing is this food issue, and the second thing is the observation of days, okay? So the Old Testament, the Jewish people, and really in every society around the world, certain seasons and days have, have been designated as special days and seasons for that particular culture. And so you have festivals and feasts. It's not just the Jewish people that had their seven feasts and festivals to the Lord. In different Gentile cultures, you had these feasts to whatever particular gods that they served, and, and seasons became very, very special in cultures. And it was the same thing within Jewish culture and in Christian culture. And today, up to this day, we see different seasons of life, like Christ, Advent season and, and Christmas, and we celebrate Christmas. And even though we may recognize theologically that there's no, day, there's no difference there, we treat Christmas as very special and very holy. And so there's this question that comes up as the collision of cultures were happening. What about days? Because there's some people in our midst that are treating these days these days and the festivals even, the Jewish festivals, as if they're still the exact same thing as pre-Christ. And we're trying to figure out what's going on here. Like, how do we approach days of the year? And so Paul addresses that as well. Look at verse 5. One person esteems one day better than another, while another esteems all days 
alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Now, observation of days. Jewish believer, the way they grew up, say they're a first-generation Messianic Jew. And the way they grew up, now they're in Rome, which was a hotbed of paganism and all this different stuff. And I remember how things went in my home growing up and how things went for my grandparents and how I heard they went for my great-grandparents all the way down to Abraham and how we functioned through the year. Okay, Now we're in a body of believers here that's mixed with Jews and Gentiles. And I've only known one way my whole life. And now that I'm in Christ saved, my sins are forgiven, the Holy Spirit is indwelling me, what am I supposed to do about how I grew up? How am I supposed to understand all that? Part of what Paul was learning in Arabia when he was in the desert for three years, where the Holy Spirit was connecting the dots from the Old Testament and how Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And so they're having these questions, what about the Lord's Day? And today, we still have people that are Lord's Day Sabbatarians. We have Christians who are Sabbatarians. Joe and Amanda Moss, when they were here, they were strong, lifelong Sabbatarians. So they wouldn't go out to eat because there are people that are working on the Lord's Day they would go home, they would not participate in recreation. And there are many others in this congregation that are considering that, or maybe grew up, that was their kind of default. There are still people who are Christian Sabbatarians, some Messianic Jews that celebrate all the feasts throughout the year and do it in remembrance of Christ. And I don't know if you know this, there's still controversy around those things. Are you going to have questions about the Lord's Day and Sabbatarianism or not? You can get in some serious, there's church splits over that kind of stuff. And you get in a day about what do we do with the Jewish feasts and festivals. I mean, you have, have you seen Star of David in churches, and in, in there's big controversy over this stuff still to this day. How do we approach this? And so Paul is addressing a very relevant, through the generations, issue. Very relevant. And his answer, I think, is absolutely brilliant. And it may be frustrating to some of us. Because I wish you'd be like, okay, here's, here, here's clearly the right answer, here's clearly the wrong. And now he's subtle about it because he talks about the weaker position through here, the weaker and the stronger brother. So it clearly gives us a direction of what's, uh, what's, what's weak and what's strong. But he calls both to godliness here. Like he doesn't give the strong people just a pass and say, you guys are right. He's like, don't use your rightness to beat people up with it. And you've heard it said before, I think, that it's hard to be right and not hurt people with it. You heard that? It's true. It's hard to be right and not hurt people with it. So here's what Paul gives. Brilliant answer. Each one should just be fully convinced in their own mind. Paul says each one should be fully convinced in their own mind. They should do the work to know why they are doing and not doing based on what the scriptures say. They should be fully convinced. In other words, Christians should not approach life. In our differences in this body, we should not approach life with a shrug-the-shoulders mentality. Eh, it's just what I do. Paul's command to the differences here is they should be fully convinced in the differing opinions. They should be fully convinced in the things that we can disagree on. Study the scriptures. Don't land somewhere because it's where, what your mama said and what your daddy said and what your grandma said and what your grandpa said. Study the scriptures and find out for yourself and get a conviction. Unity is better than uniformity. Get a conviction for yourself. Think for yourself. By the grace of God, use the mind that God has given you. And the Holy Spirit is when dwelling within you. Be convinced in your own mind. And you may just see that you're off a little bit. And then you may just come to the middle a little bit. But be fully convinced in what you believe and why you believe it. That's 
I think, really helpful. Study. Okay? Don't just believe in the festivals, church in Rome, because your grandma and grandpa did, and they did it. Don't just believe in the observance of days or the eating of foods because it's just normal for you. Wrestle. Mentally, get your mind to a place where you're fully convinced in your own mind so you're not just walking in vain, like vague ambiguity all the days of your life. Know why you believe and know, or know what you believe and why you believe it. Each should be fully convinced in their own mind. Here, here's the deal. There, eschatology is another good example here Okay, in our church. There's people who have differing views on eschatology. When and how is Christ going to come back? And there's some people here that have really strong opinions about how that's going to happen. And there are others who are like, I don't know, I don't know, but here's why I don't know. You can lay it out. But here's the deal. Be convinced in your own mind of your position. Wrestle and figure out why you land where you land. Each, be fully convinced in your own mind. If you're a Sabbatarian, know why and stick to it. And if I'm not, which I'm not, by the way, um, I'm not going to judge you for it, and I'd be asking you to not judge me for not being there are things that we can agree to disagree with in the Christian faith. Did you know that? You don't have to agree with me on everything. I hope you know that. You really don't. I, I am not the authority here. This is the authority here. And we want to be faithful to this book and study this book and be convinced in our own mind. Now, that doesn't mean that we go on to, fa to, to heretical ideas and teachings. There are guardrails that the Scripture gives us. We are to be doctrinal. We should fight for doctrinal fidelity. But there are things like, in Romans 14, there are things like this, where we can just agree to disagree and know why, and then don't judge each other for it. Just be okay with it. Be okay with different... I, I'm getting a lot of blank stares. Is that good? Right? That's a good thing. Unity is better than uniformity. We don't all have to have the exact same answers for everything. We need to have the exact same answers for a lot of things. But we don't have to have the exact same answers for everything. Paul gives this brilliant answer. It's not a call to close-mindedness, but a call to know why you believe what you believe. Unity is better than uniformity. I believe it with all my heart. I really do. But there is a few things that do unite us. Unite us. What are some things that unite us? If we can believe what we want in certain areas, then what, do we, what, are, what unifies those who have differing opinions on days and food and modern-day alcohol, diets, what's going to unite us as the body of Christ? And Paul just gives us some reminders. Hey, if you're, if you're united in this, you're going to be just fine. If you're united in this, and if you believe this about each other, you're going to be just fine. You're going to make it. And it doesn't mean we don't get to have difficult conversations about each other and, and talk about this and challenge each other in, in things like this. But if you get this, then you know we're united. Okay, I get it. Now, look at uh, verse 7 and 8. We're going to see what unites us. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we will live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Paul's assumption, his, just, his generous assumption of every believer in Rome is that nobody is living for himself. Now what kind of Christianity is that? Isn't that pretty cool? He's assuming that everyone in this church is living a sacrificial life, not to himself. None of us is living to ourselves. We're not living self-centered lives here. That's, that's, not, that's not optional. 
Church is not about self-gratification. It's not about self-indulgence. The Christian life is not about gathering people around us to affirm us all. You guys have heard me talk about this. This is not about self-indulgence. This is about living sacrificially. Die to yourself, man. And he assumes, he assumes that this is true about everybody at the Church of Rome. None of us is living to himself. We're not living selfishly here to get ours. We're not living that way. And in fact, we are called to cry out death to self. And we're called, Romans 12, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. We're called to follow Jesus and deny ourselves and to live for Christ. So these two big moments in life, Paul bookends, life and death. If we live, we live to Christ. If we die, we die for Christ. Okay? These bookends of our existence, every breath that we breathe is in between life and death in this earth. Life, death, those are the bookends. And here's what he says about life and death. Okay? Life and death. Life and death are to the Lord. What is life and death about? For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So what is the Christian's life about? Now, when the Bible says the Lord, we're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Our life is about Jesus, not us. What's our death about? Our death is about Jesus, not about us. Life and death belongs to the Lord and is the Lord's. We live and die to the Lord. That's what unifies all of us. This is about living and dying for Christ because we belong to Him. We live and die for the Lord because we are the Lord's. That's what all the Christian life is about. Every Christian with different convictions about who wrote Hebrews or how and when Jesus is going to come back or should we or shouldn't we drink or can we eat this food or that not that food, how Christ is going to ret return. Okay, everybody is united around the fact that we are living to the glory of Jesus and not for ourselves. That unifies us. And that's a pretty massive assumption that Paul has. It's an assumption that I think is should be manifest here in our midst where we are just assuming about each other the differences that we have they're there because we're not living for ourselves. They're not selfish differences. We are living for Jesus in His glory, not for ourselves in our glory, and we are united in that. So we can deal with differences because we all know that we're on the same mission together, to live for the glory of Jesus. He unpacks it a little bit further. Look at verse 9. For this, to this end Christ died and lived again, that we might be Lord, that He might be Lord of both the dead, the dead, and the living. Jesus died not simply to forgive us of our sins. He died and he is now the Lord of all creation. He lived and died for a reason. And it was not that we would become his best buddy or that he would become the great advice giver to us. It wasn't that he would give us a handshake and a pat on the butt and say, go get to work. He did it so that he would be the Lord of both the dead and the living and all of this earth. He is the Lord of the dead right now and the Lord of every living being. Jesus is Lord, which means he is in charge whether that lordship is acknowledged or not. Amen. Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords and everyone one day, whether sooner or too late, will bow the knee and admit it. He is Lord right now of every person that's ever been been alive and now is dead, he's the Lord of them and he is a Lord of everybody that's living. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He has all authority. All authority. In heaven and on earth. And Paul's assumption here is, is that we all acknowledge this. 
Jesus is Lord of my life. He's in charge. What he says go, um, uh, goes, goes. I submit to him. I do things his way. No matter what he demands of me, I'm going that way. And if we have some differences of opinion, but we're all in agreement that he is Lord and we're going with him where he goes, then we're going to make it. We're going to be okay. That's what unifies us. We're a submissive people. We follow Jesus. He's our king. We are his servants. The lordship of Christ, in other words, is not optional. There is a sense in which almost anything that sounds right is right, but it just misses the point a little bit. In the 80s and 90s, there was a huge lordship controversy. Do you remember that? Like there was a Jesus is Lord of my life kind of thing. And what Jesus is saying here is this. Whether you're living like he is or not doesn't change the fact that he is. Jesus is Lord. It's not an optional place for him if we decide to put him there or not. He is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and you're either in line with that or you're not. And so Paul's saying, church in Rome, if you have your differences, church in Carbondale, if you have your differences, unify around that, man. I mean, we're following him. He's the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. We're going there. What's with these petty differences? Why does it matter? Follow, Follow your king. That unites us even in our differences. His lordship changes everything, in other words. And if you're not living as if he is lord of your life, you need to repent and get in line. It's as easy as that. If you're still holding on to things like, yeah, I'll give Jesus some of this aspect of my life, but not this other aspect. I'm not going to let him go there or address that. I'm not going to let him call me to repentance there. Who do you think you are? Who are you to contend with God? And you may say now, like, well, that's not a big deal. It is a big deal. And one day you'll have to see it. And Christians are not allowed to hold on to pockets of our lives for the rest of our lives and say, "Uh, God, you can have some aspects that I want you to have, but I'm going to keep on. This is my pet idol here, and I'm just going to, I'm going to keep on to this. Who do you think you are, honestly? Open up. God, help me. I want to follow you. You're Lord. This is wrong. I don't want this in my life. Help me. Plead with him every day. Gather people around you. Let's go. Don't hold on to your sin. He died for it. We don't get to keep it. And so whatever he says has to go, that's got to go. It's got to go. So if you're not living as as if Jesus is Lord, get in line. It's just as simple as that. And that unites us, friends. And honestly, here's the deal. There's a lot of people in this church now, and God keeps bringing new people. There are a lot of people here, and that's my assumption about you. My assumption is that you want to follow. Thank you, Rowan. That's my assumption. Is that that's my assumption about you and about this family? Is that my assumption is we want that Jesus is Lord. There's an acknowledgement of that and the tenderness about the hearts of the people here that want to follow Him. That's that's the kind of a community that you're invited in here. If you're here, you, that's this is the kind of community that you're a part of. Follow follow God. Jesus is Lord, and I think God is continuing to build a community of people who really believe that and want want that. And so in light of that, in light of that truth, here's the big question we come back around to. Why pass judgment on each other? If we we really believe that about each other, God's got us and we're following him, why are we judging each other inappropriately? Okay, and here's where the the nitty-gritty details begin to work out. Look at verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you, not, why do you despise your brother? 
For we will, we, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So that each of us will give an account of himself to God. Here's the lingering question. It's just kind of hanging up there. Why are you going to pass judgment on each other? Okay, how, many, how often have you heard um, legalist Christians called Pharisees by those who walk in Christian liberty? Pharisee is this term, especially since I was in college. It was very, it's a very popular term. In like the mid-90s, there was this real big push called the emergent church and emerging church, and there were these battles over what church is going to look like in the 21st century, and Rob Bell was real big, you know, I love Rob Bell and Erwin McManus and some of these other yahoos, to be honest, but uh, they grabbed my attention, got my attention, and, and there was a big community of people, especially younger people, who just called anybody who had what we call legalism, we just called them all Pharisees, and it's so unbelievably arrogant because it's categorically two different kinds of people. A Pharisee is by definition not a Christian. And a person with strong convictions doesn't mean they're a Pharisee. They're a, either a legalistic Christian or they're somebody. There's another category within this that those who have Christian liberty like to call those who just simply care about God's word and want to obey it in areas that make the Christian liberty guy uncomfortable. And the, the guy over here is just saying, hey, listen, the Bible says do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, pastor, as the pastor's... I know I can't tell you how many pastors I know whose language is terrible. Tons of pastors I know cuss like crazy. And to say, wait a minute, here's what God says, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, and then have other people say, well, that's legalism. That's not legalism. That's, that's trying to be obedient and push the scriptures into every nook and cranny of my life and just try to be obedient. That's not legalism. I just want to obey where God tells me to obey. And so we have to understand the categorical difference here. And those who walk in Christian liberty, typically, if they're in the wrong place, if they're in the wrong place understanding their Christian liberty, they think it's, a, it's, it's liberty to make everybody else feel less than, rather than I'm free to abstain for the good of my brother. Rather than I'm free to abstain for the sake of holiness. Rather, I'm finally free to obey God. And so I've heard legalistic Christians called Pharisees, and it's not healthy. And anytime somebody has a doctrinal concern about, you know, a song that comes out, there was that song a couple years ago that came out, um, that love song. What was that love song that came out? Reckless love song, and, I, you know, people had different opinions about it. But I can't tell you how many people who, called, who questioned the, the, using the word reckless love, and people would say, well, that's just anybody who has a problem with that's just a legalist. No, they're not. That's not legalism to have a question about something. Like, listen, and they might be wrong, but don't just call them a Pharisee. It's not Pharisaical. And then, so the arrogance of the, the person who has Christian liberty, judging those who are legalists as Pharisees, it's pitiful and it's, it's not right. So then there are these Christians that flaunt their liberty around intentionally to arouse a response so they can call those who question their licentiousness Pharisaical. They need to stop it. Then secondly, though, there are those who turn their nose up at Christians who enjoy a glass of wine or a drink of beer with a friend or with their spouse. And there still are legalists around who have issues with things the scriptures don't have issues with. 
and who take legalism beyond the scriptures. It's not trying to faithfully apply the scriptures. There are legalists who have their own rules that they've made up based on what grandma and grandpa said. And grandma and grandpa said a lot of right things, and we need to learn from grandma and grandpa. Okay? We, I don't want to dishonor grandma and grandpa. We need to learn from them. And great grandma on the way things were done in the past. We need to learn. But we don't base what we base and then demand everybody else agree with us just because I say so. Legalism is a really ugly thing that will call people out as, they're, as if they're being in sin when they're just doing what God says. And legalism is this ugly thing. And if we're legalistic and we turn our nose up at, at things that we think others shouldn't do, but there's no biblical mandate to do it that way or the other way, then this is correcting for us as well. Don't be a legalist. And don't use your freedom as a mallet. There are Christians who judge other people based on their own convictions and not according to God's word. This, and Paul's just really practical. As we give these two characters flesh, we realize, oh, I've met them and I've been them at one time or another. And Paul's just, quit it. Don't do that. Rally around the lordship of Christ. God's going to sort all that out. He, Paul, he just asks them, why are you despising your brother? And the question lingers and challenges us all. Verse 11 and 12, God's going to correct us where we're wrong. Future judgment will not include shame. It says, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Future judgment will not include shame, but it will include correction. It will not include, uh, it will not include shame. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Every child of God, every single believer in Christ will stand at the judgment seat and will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. We all will because of what Christ has done for us. But under that banner of no condemnation, we will receive correction where we have been wrong in this life, where we have done things that were wrong in this life. And we won't feel shame for it because we'll see that Christ has already paid for it, but we will be corrected. It'll be full of grace and full of the Father's love, but we will see where we have been wrong. And friends, every one of us, I think, are going to be surprised in some ways that we have been wrong. We'll give an account for our actions and our lives. And here's the deal. It will be really glorious. That giving of account and discovering the areas of that we've been wrong will not be shameful. It will be, oh my gosh, that's amazing. I was wrong. And that's the way it was. Praise God. It's going to be glorious for us. There's going to be a day that we figure this stuff all out. The questions that we have, infralapsarianism versus superlapsarianism. We'll figure it out. Postmillennialism versus pre-tribulation, dispensational premillennialism. We'll figure it all out. Which was right? Gifts of the Spirit, all of them, or only some of them. We'll, we'll, one day we'll see. As we now see in a glass dimly, then we will see clearly. We will know as we are fully known. There will be a day where we'll figure it all out. So friends, the challenge I have for you this morning is simply letting the text speak. As the Holy Spirit leads you, where are some areas in your life that you need to repent? Where are some areas in your life that you need to acknowledge the Lordship of Christ? Jesus lived a perfect, sacrificial, substitutionary life and death in your place so that you could recognize, you could recognize that your sin warranted a cross. That's what your life warranted. And he went to the cross to pay a penalty of your sin. He died in your place for your sin. He rose from the grave, overcoming Satan's sin and death. He sent the Holy Spirit to empower you to walk under his rulership and to live this life out to his glory and honor. Where is it in your life you're holding on to your idolatry? 
Where is it in your life that you're not acknowledging the lordship of Christ? Where is it that you're despising your brother or sister in your heart? Where is it that you're walking with arrogance and pride? As if, if only other people knew what I knew, they would be as godly as me. Why do you despise your brothers? Let's pray. Holy Spirit, lead us. I trust that you will. Uh, Jesus, I thank you that you are the King of kings. You are the Lord of lords.